Well, I wonder how you know that you know Christ. How do you know that you know Christ? Now, to give you a little preview of what I plan to unfold in the next several weeks, for the next six weeks of sermons, I've been thinking about this for months, and really for about two years, I've been talking with other friends and people about it, both inside the church and friends outside of the church. Uh, My hope is that for the next six weeks, I'll express what I think is the words of the Bible's picture of the hope in totality that we have in Christ. So I hope to express the picture from the Scripture of the hope that you and I have in Christ. Or put another way, I want to preach to you what the Bible portrays of the glory of God and salvation of man. The glory of God and salvation of man. What does the Bible have to say in total about that? Now, the the title for my sermon series, which we kind of don't really do here, like I send out an email every Saturday, and I don't really think about that much long or that long at all, but the, the title for the next several weeks is From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, a tagline from a song written 160 years ago about the totality of God's love for His people showcasing itself in that in Christ from heaven He came, sought and bought His church to be His holy bride. For six weeks, I want to cover everything from the need that you and I have to to God's promise of keeping us in everlasting life. So the sermons will be systematic and whole, I I hope. Systematic and whole of Christ saving sinners from destruction. So when you and I look at the Bible, I, I think it's helpful to understand that there are kind of three sequential ways of you and I understanding what the Bible says in whole. So if you're gonna if you're gonna read through the Bible three times, maybe this year. Read through the Bible three times. You might, might look at it from different angles. The first is just to study what the Bible says. So this is all in the intro. This is like, I think I have three intros this morning. This is all still in the Hold on. I gave you a 25-minute sermon last week, so buckle up for this one. All right, so the first pursuit of the Lord is, I'm kidding for guests, but kind of not really. The first one is to study, study the Bible. That's how you pursue the Word. Study the Bible. Know what it says. Understand it. Study it like you would study a map or study a town. Know it more and more. See what it says. That's, that's basically what, what we try to do when we hear sermons or study the text on our own. The majority of the time as we preach through, as I preach through a text, I'm trying to explain it on its own terms so that you may know the particulars of this Word. The, the second pursuit in the Scriptures is to see how the whole of Scripture might use one particular passage. This is what's called biblical theology. So understanding how this passage fits into the whole of Scripture. If the Scripture is about Christ and His glory from beginning to end, how is Mark 4 showcasing itself and involving itself in that? The text rightly understood within the whole of Scripture's teaching. It's the second way to kind of pursue the text. The third one and this will be the series goal for the next couple of weeks, is to seek the text's application on your own heart. So you study it, you see it within the breadth of Scripture, and then you might say, you might apply it or understand it systematically. And basically, that third pursuit is what systematic theology is in total. It's seeking to apply the truth of the text to your life. And many of you might go, uh, systematic theology is like what nerds do in their spare time. It has nothing to do with application, but no way. Yes, it does. You might ask the question, will I be married in heaven? Or ask the question, can I forgive someone who doesn't apologize to me? Will hell be forever? How can I walk with Christ when he's not even around? All of those are application questions that are answered through systematic theology. 
Now, systematic theology is broad. It, traditionally, it's held in 10 major categories. Uh, so if you want to go to a Sunday school class, I'm going to plug my Sunday school class because it's called systematic theology, where we're going through all of what the scriptures say that we can understand in doctrine. But I want to answer over the next six weeks, six questions that can have us understand, I think, God's pursuit of people for the sake of their salvation in total. So here are the questions I want to pursue over the next six weeks. Do we know Christ? Do we need Christ? Can we choose Christ? Can we have and hold Christ? Can we refuse Christ? And ultimately, can we lose Christ? So, so today, I want to ask the question and answer the question, do we know Christ? Or friend, to you in particular, do you know him? And maybe more emphatically, how do you know that you do know him? After Christ's death, his apostles faithfully taught from the scriptures about Christ and how you and I can know Christ. They knew that they knew because of what they had read, what they had seen, and what they were inspired to instruct other people on. Others after these apostles in the early church, others after them knew that they knew because of what they too read from what these apostles wrote, what Christ preached and proclaimed, and even what the prophets in the Old Testament proclaimed about God. They knew that they knew because of what they saw for themselves. Now, obviously, from the start, we got to recognize that understanding the Bible's teaching about God is the only way that you and I can know Christ. The Bible's teaching about God is the only conceptual, magnificent way that you and I can understand Christ. How can I understand Christ? Most simply put, by understanding what the scriptures say about God and Christ. From the start, it's essential that we know what our Bibles say and accurately interpret as what's called Christian doctrine. And we do this by the help of Bible studies or expository preaching or asking questions or even Googling questions, maybe on a Saturday night, seeking to understand what does the Bible say about God on its own terms. We can only love God with our minds. And you think of the Scripture's call for us to understand and love the Lord with all of our mind. We can only love God with our minds when we come to know Him through the proper study. And by that, through the proper worship of God by what He says about Himself and His Word. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. I think there are three, maybe four. We'll see how this goes. But the first one is, you might, if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. Why is it important to know Christ? Why is it important to know Christ? Now, what I want to do today is really zoom in on the exemplified work of early Christians. That's what our text is in uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This amazing, exemplified work of early Christians. How is it that they knew Christ? How is it that they worshiped Christ? Well, look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. A church was, this church was booming in size. So much to do and so many people to care for. And, and what did they do? You know, when the going got tough, what did they spend their time on? As people kept busting in the doors, what did they focus on? Well, this church that we have, in this case, in Acts chapter 2, this church devoted themselves, it says, to the apostles' teaching. Or, if you like, to the apostles' doctrine, to their, to their unfolding of the teaching of Scripture. Doctrine is just another word for teaching, if you translate it differently. This, this bustling church devoted itself to the Word, you might think of it. One book that means 
So Much to Me was written by a Scotsman named uh, Bruce Milne. It's titled Know the Truth. You can still buy it today. And in the intro of this book, To Know the Truth, Milne opens up by asking the question, why is the study of Christian doctrine so vital? Now, I know, and I'm, I'm not foolishly under the impression that all of you are going home or woke up this morning cracking open a thousand-page systematic theology book and going, this is the day of the Lord, I want to hear it. Why is it so important for some of us, and I'm going to call you, to understand and seek out for and grasp what's called Christian doctrine? Why is it so vital? The author of that book, Know the Truth, answers this by four simple answers. Uh, he says, first, that because every Christian is a theologian, whether you like it or not, you're a theologian of the Word. Now, some of you are poor theologians. Some of you are great theologians. But the call for all of us is to be excellent viewers and understanders of who Christ is in His glory. Every Christian is a theologian, and in this sense that theology is the science of God, or theology is the knowledge of God that emerges from an acquaintance with God brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit being instructed by the very pages of Scripture. How do you know Christ? Well, you open up the Bible and see what it says. So it's impossible, I think, to be a believer, to be a Christian, without being someone who has some knowledge of God and who recognizes that that knowledge of God is deepening all the time. A Christian is someone who's not only understanding of who God is in Christ, but also pursuing that more deeply, the affections of our heart turned towards Him. And it's to be deepened because of the study of Christian doctrines, the first reason why it's so vital to study what the Word says about Christ. Secondly, the author of this book says it's vital because getting doctrine right is the key to getting everything else right. If we want to know how we should worship, then the answer ought to be found in the knowledge of the Bible, in understanding Christian doctrine. If we want to know how to be a good witness to our neighbor, as difficult as they may be, the answer is to be found in the knowledge of Scriptures how to conduct yourself at work, how to, how to disciple your kids, how to embark on a new relationship, how to nurture Christian friendships. The answer to all of these questions emerges from a study of what God says about Himself and the Word, a knowledge of God through His Word. I was talking with one of my friends a couple of days ago about 2023, uh, and we both came to find out that one of the things that we love doing is uh, we love planning, even to the point where we have planners, and we think about it, analyze it, pursue it every day, even to the point where our own planners, as different as they look, we have a morning routine, right when we get at work routine, right when we leave work routine, and before we go to bed routine. Now I'm thinking, man, what a cool friendship. I know, I know, not everyone has it. It was a fun convo, swapping pictures about our planning sheets. Mine was cooler because it's hardback, his is paperback. And, you know, but, the, but the best thing about this is he showed me his sheet of goals and and praise God on the list was simple Bible study and Bible memorization, along with the, all the other things that this guy wants to do with his year and his family, amongst his friends and his work, all of the goals that he has. Right there simply is a study of Scripture and memorization. Nothing else beyond the Bible's truth will ultimately lead us to righteousness as much as we might plan for great things in the year to come. Friends, don't overstep the bounds of what the Bible says about itself. It is a lamp and to our feet. And if you don't use it, you're just walking in darkness. Third, the third uh, thing of why Christian um, doctrine is so vital to understand, uh, the author says, a study of Christian doctrine is an expression of loving God with our minds. Remember Jesus says in response to the Pharisees' question, what is the greatest commandment? He says, you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. 
What does it mean to love God with all of your mind? How can a person love God with all of their mind? The answer is just so clearly in getting serious about what God says about himself to us through his scriptures, in getting serious about a knowledge of God. It's not just something that people in ivory towers seek to obtain. To understand the Lord is to pursue him and how he bestows himself toward us. Now, fourthly, Milne says, finally, doctrine is vital because it is impossible, finally, to separate Christ from the truths which Scripture reveals about him. It is impossible to separate Christ from the truths which Scripture reveals about him. In other words, our knowledge of Jesus is a knowledge which is gained through the Word of God. If you want to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, you cannot do it outside of pursuing it through his very word about himself. He has given you everything and what you need and want to understand him more richly in. It is not a uh, mere knowledge of Jesus that happens in some, I don't know, esoteric experience in a corner, but it is in getting to know the Bible that we get to know Jesus. So why is it so important? Because it is a love of the Lord that we pursue him through his word. Now, I want to give you, secondly, an example of pursuing a knowledge of Christ. So this is where we go back to our text. An example of pursuing a knowledge of Christ. Now, the passage, this passage of our text isn't just about teaching. This is not just something that, that pastors will tell each other at a pastor's conference of, of like, yeah, this is what we do every day. We teach the Bible. Friends, this is for you. You are called to know the word in such a way that you would then talk about that word to someone else. You're never asked to quietly receive, tuck away, and then meander on at the neighborhood market as if nothing ever happened in your soul. The very role of Christ's glory in man is a magnification of who God is in Christ. And how can you do that without actually opening your mouth and talking about it? So this passage isn't just about teaching formally, like from this pulpit to your chair, but it shows a couple of things that the church did after Christ had left them. It's a couple of things that they prioritized. So for our sake, I think there are a couple there. I just want to hone in on one. For our sake, I'm having you see what they first did. This was their first priority. They were a word-focused church because they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Or to put more simply, they devoted themselves to reading, knowing, understanding what the Bible says about God. Now, I like this because this talks about doctrine. Then they gladly received his word and were baptized, and they continued steadfastly, where? In the apostles' doctrine. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They studied. The thing they committed themselves to was knowing the word. That's the basis of it. Now, when we say the word doctrine, that is not some great, sacred, mystical word. It's, it's actually translated from the word didache, meaning teaching. That's all. That's all it is. It's teaching. They devoted themselves to what these men taught. They gave themselves to being instructed, but also for the sake of teaching others. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and here's, here's the way it goes. Timothy, you have been taught by me, so I want you to teach other faithful men so that those faithful men will go in turn and teach others of the faithfulness of God. This is a reproductive cycle of teaching. That's the pattern of the church. It's always been the pattern of the church. It's been the pattern of this church, and it's especially the pattern of the church in Acts chapter 2, a reproductive cycle of teaching. The church is not and never was intended to be a, a spectator organization. This, this moment right here, this sermon moment right here is not to be the end point of your, of your week. This is the first day of the week, meaning you have many more days this week. 
And it shouldn't be the only time that you're receiving or even talking about it, but you have the rest of the week to do so. It was never intended to be an entertainment center where you just go and fill up, or even like a, like a car wash. You just go through, get a little cleaned up, and then you're on your merry way. It was always intended to be a multiplicative teaching cycle where faithful men are taught who in turn teach others. In this church, in Acts chapter 2, they had it right. They had the right content, and they were committed to this study. Now, if you're going to teach, uh, you've got to do what seems to be implicit. Paul says, again, to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you're going to teach, what then do you do? He says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, first of all, study to show yourself approved. You can't teach someone if you haven't studied for yourself. I can tell you something that I haven't first thought about, or hopefully. The pattern for growth in the church is simply given in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, which says that as babies desire milk, you desire the word that you may grow in it and grow by it. Growth comes from teachings. If we want to grow as a body, if we want God to be magnified in these walls and outside of these walls, we need to first prioritize our hearts as a body collectively and then also individually to be taught what God says about himself. And I believe you can. I count it in my own life, a wasted day when I haven't learned something new from the Word of God about God, or when I haven't learned some new truth about the Word of God, or I haven't plumbed deeper than ever before into an old truth. And sometimes it's just zooming in on a word, and sometimes it's just seeing the, a whole story or a whole narrative in the Old Testament like never before. I count it a wasted day if I don't pursue it in that way. Teaching, studying, content, doctrine is the basis of the church. Emotion is not the basis of the church. Commonality of our hobbies or friends are not the basis of the church, but, but truth as laid down by Christ, as he conferred from the prophets before him and confirmed by the apostles who would come after him. Paul said to the Romans, what you need to do is not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which is set on the foundation of the words of Christ. And it's not isolated. This is not just a one-off that happens in Acts. It's not just a one-off that, that Paul tells Timothy to go out and do. If you think about what Colossians says. In fact, let's just turn to Colossians. Turn to the right if you're unused to the Scriptures. I'm in Acts, so like seven books over. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the book name is the big letters at the top of the pages. And I'm going to Colossians chapter 3, which is a big number 3, probably in the middle of the page. And then verse number 10, which are the tiny tiny numbers there. So turn to the right, book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 10. This is, I'm, I'm turning you here because I don't want you to think that this is just an isolated text where this church was devoting itself to Scripture, and Paul told this one guy this one time, maybe that's fine for him, but we're not Timothy. Look at what Paul tells this church, Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of after the image of its creator. Put on the new man that is renewed in knowledge. Put on the new man that is renewed in knowledge. That's talking about what we all know. It's talking about receiving and understanding what God has said to us in his word. Now, listen to 1 Peter, another, another apostle, another character in the Bible who's saying the same thing. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 1. You don't have to go there, but you can just write it down. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action... 
Think of it. It's like war-type material. Preparing your mind for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or more literally translated, gird your mind for action. That's where to begin. You need to learn. You need to, you need to open your mind and understand what Christ says to us. You've got to have the right input which is doctrine, which is truth from the Word. Doctrine is the basis for everything. That's why we're committed to teaching the Word of God, not, not doing all kinds of other things. And this is where the Great Commission of Jesus was emphatically placed on the foundation of teaching the world the gospel and the Word of God. Doctrine is the heart of everything. It's the absolute foolishness to come along and say that the curse of the church is teaching and what we need more of is less teaching. Hosea said this, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Paul said to Titus, here's how to do it. You want to be a minister, Titus? Teach what accords with sound doctrine. So friends, you want to be a good dad to your kid? No one will care about their shoes in 10 years. No one will care about how fun you were or how cool your kid thought you were. You want to be a good manager of coworkers around you? You want to be a good friend to people who are around you? Know what you can say to them. It's a fairly straight statement. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Titus chapter 1 verse 9 says with a qualification, this is of a qualification of an elder. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be given or he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. 1 Timothy chapter 4 says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus by being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 13 says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, sound doctrine. And then he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, preach the word. He says, preach the word, preach the word, preach the word. And he says this because a time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine. Doctrine in its proper context is the basis of everything. Improper doctrine, false doctrine will just cause you to act like you're insane. You don't have anything to trust anything on. There's an old story of Martin Luther who oh, we sang one of the songs that he wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. If anything was like, if anyone was like more masculine and just downright trusting in who God was in Christ according to his word, it was Martin Luther. But Luther very much dealt with great bouts of depression. He would go for days and days and days not being able to speak or talk. And it would be friends who would remind him of the truth of Scripture. One story has it that uh, Luther got so depressed and so sad and so scared that he actually left the house for three days. He just left, like wandering around. I don't know how he survived. I don't know what he did. I don't know where he was, but he left. And his wife had seen this done before, and so this time she wanted to act differently towards him. So what she did is she knew that he would come home. He always does, but what she did is she adorned herself with normal funeral attire, adorned herself with black and a veil over her face so that when he would return, she would see that he, that he would see that she was mourning. And so he walked in, as he always had done. He came back, and he saw that she was in funeral attire, and he burst out, who died? What happened? And she said, oh, you haven't heard? God died. 
Now, Luther was a theologian, so he burst out in all the you know, five-syllable words. It's impossible for God to die. The one who created everything cannot be overtaken by anything. The one who was the ground basis for all of creation cannot pass away. He's ruling and sovereign over everything. What do you mean God died? And Luther's wife stood up, took the veil off her face, and said, you're right. Now act like it. My friends, Christian doctrine is the content of everything that you need for your life and your hope. Because without it, what difference does anything else make? So you see, the early church had the right content. They were in the context of what, had God, what God had given them in, and they had the apostles' doctrine. They learned the word of the Lord. You don't need to be entertained in pursuing the Lord. You don't need to be flattered in pursuing the Lord. You don't need to be anything but taught the word of God. And the Spirit of God in your willing heart will activate that teaching into vibrancy of living. But it's got to be in there first. You can't operate on the content that you don't have. You can't function on the principles you don't know. You can't sleep like you might have tried before a test with your head against a book that you're going to be examined by the next day and hope that it just seeps in your mind. But rather, you have to put it in there first. And in that respect... This church established the pattern of the church's activity for all time, right down to this very morning, because since the teaching of the apostles to which they devoted themselves here has come down to us in its decisive form, we go to the apostles' teaching, to Christ's words, to the announcement of the prophets in our Bibles. So then what is the contemporary expression of this kind of devotion? What does it mean for you and I to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching It's a devotion to our Bibles. It's a devotion to the New Testament truths, which were built upon the foundations of the Old Testament doctrine. And for these apostles, they were constantly having their eyes open to the wonders of the way in which the Old Testament had emerged into all of their new experience. And the principle is simply this. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. Outside of that, we can hope for nothing else. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. We see this pattern throughout Scripture. Now, a little bit of a case study. All right, so this is an example of a church that did this. Let's look at a case study. It's nice that they did that, but maybe this looked different elsewhere. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. So turn back. We were in Acts chapter 2, so turn maybe a couple of pages over to Acts chapter 6. There at the very beginning of Acts chapter 6. God's supreme instrument in renewing his people after the image of his son is his word. And here's a case study for it. That's why the acts of the apostles are so full of the centrality of preaching. Now, a lot of you might think of the book of Acts as the book of missions or the book of miracles or the book of amazing things. What was the book of Acts about? Sermon after sermon after sermon, and then God would do amazing things. So look at Acts chapter 6. Just kind of gaze Add those first couple of verses, 1 through 6 or 1 through 7. And this is the first little negotiation within a church that goes on as a result of the dramatic expansion that is taking place. There's this little problem on a practical level. Not that churches have ever had issues, but there's a little problem on a practical level of whether certain widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. It looked like some 
racially were being overlooked so that others would be given food. Widows, widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food which had emerged from the way in which these early Christians were prepared to share so wonderfully with one another. But it looked like there was a group that was left behind. And so what the leaders of the church did, these elders of the church, they gathered all the disciples together and they said, look, look, it's not right for any of us, any of these teachers, any of us to neglect the ministry of the Word. We have an issue, but it is not right for us to neglect what we have been called to do, the ministry of the Word of God. Just note that phrase, the ministry of the Word of God. He said, it's not right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Most practically, if there is an issue in the body of Christ, it is not the elders who are called to deal with every issue in the body of Christ. What they're saying is, first things first, it's far more important for the Word of God to be proclaimed than for we pastors to take out time of what we're doing in order to wait on tables. So let's get some guys together who are full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, and we'll turn the responsibility over to them, that we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This is the apostolic pattern of the power and the purity of the Word going out. There are issues they need to be dealt with, but not at the cost of called out men who are devoting themselves to the word and prayer for them to execute that opportunity. So we, we practically see this as why we have deacons in our church, why we have servants in our church who are caring for the practical things of people within the church. They must be cared for, but not at the cost of the word not going out. This is what it means for those who are entrusted with the responsibility of the Word of God to be the very servants of God by bringing before God the needs of the people in prayer and in bringing before the people the very words of God provided for us in Holy Scripture. It's a two-way street here. I'm to bring, other elders are to bring, the very prayers and aspirations of the people God has entrusted to us, and I am also and we are also called to bring the very words of God to the people. And that's why there still exists the necessity of authoritative teaching of God's Word by those who are called and equipped to do so. Even though it's been the norm down through the years to hear people explaining that preaching is becoming obscure and unnecessary, people don't believe in it, it's just become something that's old hat. I've lived long enough through all sorts of movement and ages, even at my young age. I've, I've lived through the music scandal of the 80s and 90s where they want more music in the place of preaching. And if we could have, just have different things up here on stage and do away with little preaching, and because in fact, songs talk more to people's hearts. Or even the video age, where we can now replace preaching with, with other videos. Or what's coming and what's somewhat here, the artificial intelligence age, where you can just pop on some kind of virtual reality visor or whatever and attend church virtually. And I've watched and listened to it all. But through it all, I've lived to see, to be resolved that when the Spirit of God takes up a man of God who is able to open the Word of God, the Christians will attend to that Word with listening ears. The Christians will listen to the Word. It's hilarious to watch desperate men try to manipulate God by forming their church not based on the Word, but fads. If we could just have this or that, then, then we can really be a church of God. Choir, no choir. Hymnals, no hymnals. Drama, no drama. Skits, no skits. Solos, casual attire, formal attire, really good coffee, really dark lights, on and on. Then, then revival will break out. If only the word had that. Imagine George Whitfield 
preaching to 15,000 people in Massachusetts. If he only had lights. No, didn't need it. Word didn't need it. When in reality, if you want people to sing, turn up the lights and turn down the music. If you want people to pray, don't make a prayer a transition, but a moment of encountering God and desperation. If you want people's lives to be changed, don't give them advice, but open up the Bible and say, this is the word of the Lord. Friends, this isn't just me to you. This is you in your own household. This is you in your own friend group. How are you going to encourage your best friend to grow in 2023? Don't be silent about what God has said to you in Christ. So we come together. We focus ourselves. We commit ourselves to the very sustenance and nourishment that will drive us out to march for another week. It's no small thing for you not just talking about me, it's no small thing for you to have the responsibility of holding, as you do regularly, consistently, a book that mediates your relationship between a holy God and your heart. It's, it's no superficial thing. One of the coolest sounds I think I've ever heard was during a debate in seminary. You can imagine what debates, how cool those are in seminary. They had, they had a panel up on the stage, and there were four guys sitting in chairs, and they were debating. Uh, they were literally debating uh, between one service and two services, or three services, multi-site and all this stuff. It was four theologians, different come from different angles, so no one's just off their rocker or whatever. But, but there, was, there was one moment where one of these guys, uh, everyone was holding like you do on a stage. You hold the Bible on your lap so that you look really spiritual and really Christian. But there was one moment when a guy took his Bible, closed it, placed it on the ground, and there was an audible, oh, man, in the audience. Now, part of it was he was losing the debate, and so everyone was just throwing eggs on him at the time. But what, what was the symbolism of what that guy did when talking about the glory of Christ? Don't need it. Just that little symbol. Man, friends, think about what you and I hold hopefully, in your hands on a regular thing. This is no superficial book. When you find it in the Old Testament, it says again and again, for example, in the prophetic books, the description that is given of the servant of God and giving birth to the very truth that he is to bear. It says that he is the oracle of Jeremiah, or it is the oracle of Haggai. The word there actually, and it's sometimes translated in the, the King James Version, the burden of Jeremiah, the burden of Haggai. It's the word burden that is brought to our tip when we look at the words of Isaiah. Or in other words, it's that which weighs down on our hearts and our minds of an individual that they should have most awesome responsibilities to bring the very word of God, to bear it upon the people of God. Not to give talks from the Bible, not to get sage, give sage advice, not to give principles, but to bring the very word of God to people, to the people of God. May we tremble at our friends and family, even beyond our walls, who go to bear the word of God without being burdened by its prospect. May you be brought to tremble as you might go to bear the word of God to others and not feel the weight of its glory. It is a costly thing to talk to others about God's glory. And I mean in every dimension of what the Word of God has brought to bear, not just from me to you in a formal setting, but it is a costly thing to teach little children in a Sunday school or little ones in your home, or old kids when they come back from college. It will cost you, if you're prepared to take it seriously, that the very destiny of some of those children under your care, under God, are dependent upon the faithfulness of your preparation and understanding and submissive heart with which you come to the task that they might take seriously. 
of what is said in the Word. Eric Alexander, guy 150 years ago, describing, or 100 years ago, describing an encounter between himself and a pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was an extremely accomplished doctor. Um, he worked with someone who actually worked with a royalty uh, in England, and then he left all that to pursue the ministry, an obscure Welsh Calvinistic Methodist church out in the middle of nowhere, and then was later brought back to London. This man, Alec, Alec, Eric Alexander, introduced him at an event where then Martin Lloyd-Jones went on preaching, and aware of all that had been taken out of him, sometimes if you've ever given a talk, maybe it's 10 minutes, maybe it's that one time in your speech class where you have to give a five-minute presentation, and it just ta- it takes all of you. You know, you're preparing for nine days on a five-minute talk on like, here's how to start a car. And it's like, you turn it, and you're like, oh, man, I'm glad it's over. But he saw, Eric Alexander saw that the doctor was exhausted. He was still called a doctor, even though he was a preacher. He said, my friend, are you exhausted after... Martin Lloyd-Jones came down and sat and slouched over. He says, I'm not exhausted, I'm relieved. To which he responds, in what way? And Lloyd-Jones replied, I think this is the closest that any man will ever come to the experience of travail and delivery, knowing that his very moment in that pulpit was there to show you the glory of heaven and the awfulness of hell. And he had a moment of your time it was a burden, even to the point that he was willing to give up. So the call for us, this little diatribe, and I'll close with this. Well, I'll quote him, and then I'll close. But the, this, my little rant this morning is, is with the expectation that the next five Sundays, I'll try to squeeze out all the glory of the Scriptures so that you and I may be able to answer questions that our hearts most deeply desire. Can we have Christ? Will He hold on to us? Will He keep us forever? Those, those things. And friend, how can we know that? How can we answer those questions with confidence? My goal in everything is for you to be able to go to the Word with great confidence as a Christian, and you can by doing what was done in Acts chapter 2, 42, by devoting yourself to the words of the apostles. Let me quote to you from this. It's a song that we sing very often that I want us to encounter the next week with its boldness. It says, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. What more can He say than to you He has said? To, who, to you for whom refuge Jesus hath fled? Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, all-sufficient, shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you, my only design, thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. May we face our Mondays with the confidence that God has given us in the teaching of the apostles. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for what your word says clearly about you. We pray that we would pursue you, you in truth, you in glory through what it says. Oh God, make us like your servants of old, those who dedicated themselves to your glory. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our scriptures explain what Jesus had done with his great friends before he was crucified. The Bible says that on the night before Jesus was crucified, he ate dinner with his disciples. And as they were eating, he gave them a picture or a sign of what shows us the gospel truly looks like. What Jesus did at the Last Supper, as it's called, was he took bread and he took wine. He divided the bread, he he broke it up and passed it around, and he passed wine around in a glass. And he told them to think of this time as a meal that they should eat, they should enjoy it. But this meal was like a sign, it would be like a memorial where his body and his blood would be given over for them. Now, we believe as Christians that we should regularly practice or rehearse or do what these men did in what was called the upper room. So we're going to do the Lord's Supper somewhat like they did the Lord's Supper. Because at Jesus' death, he was killed for his people. At Jesus' death, his blood was shed for his people to the point where they could be assured that their trust in him would be complete as he said it was finished. Now, Christians are always recognized as repentant sinners, meaning that, yes, we are sinners, but we do go to the Lord in forgiveness. So if you're here and you know that you are broken or sinful in great need, I need need you to understand that in repentance, this meal is exactly what you need and is for you to celebrate, to remember, to reorient your, your focus and your heart toward the finished work of Christ. Paul says that you should examine yourself before coming up to one of these plates. So do that. When we pray, examine your heart. Am I repentant of my sin? And then if the answer is yes, only you will know that, then go to the heart. Go to the table with great gusto. Now, if you're here and you're not a believer in Christ, I just want to ask that you don't go to the table when other people go. They'll be going at different times, so no one will look at you or point you out. Or, Christian, if you find yourself in a a state of non-repentance, I want to ask you to also not go to the table and have this time fuel your repentance as you might sit there and seek the Lord in His grace and mercy. Now, in a moment, we'll, I'll, I'll pray, and then at the end of the prayer, no one will tell you, but go to the tables. When I say amen, I want you to take, there are two stacked cups, one with juice in it and then the bottom one with bread. Take both of those back to your seat, and we'll take all of them together. But as you do go up, friends, I want you to, I want you to look around at the other people who are going with you. You are not alone in this world. Christ died to make you a new person to be amongst new people. Let's pray together, and then we'll feast. Gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that you have done for us what was necessary for us to have true joy and new life in you. Lord, we pray that you would have our hearts meditate on your son's death, knowing that this gives us absolute joy in the life to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.